Um, as the kids continue to do that, I want us to continue to remind you there's a next steps area, like what we talked about where uh, you could sign up for the meal train for the family, but also uh, there's forms in front of you. If you have any questions, uh, any concerns, you got anything moving on, we want to come alongside. So write down a note or meet uh, Meredith or someone else in the back there because we want to continue to meet with you and dive in uh, in all areas and that kind of stuff. Um, just so you know, you're, we've hit the Revelation reading plan uh, part, uh, what we're reading along. So if you've been reading along with us, you've read Revelation 1 through 5. If not, we'll be digging in that uh, this week. And um, just so you know, the next five weeks, we will be in Revelation. So you will know how perfectly the end times happens. So uh, maybe, maybe not so much, but we'll be able to dig into the Scripture. And just so you guys know... Just so you know, this is an overview. Uh, you, this is going to be difficult to do revelation in five weeks in the sense where we could sit down in one area and really, really dig. And we want to dig in, uh, but it's like one of those planes. Have you ever seen those planes like in the movies? It's usually Fast and Furious. They're like flying and they'll come down low, drop off a car like to the ground, and then they'll fly back up, something ridiculous like that. Well, we can come down and sit in a little area, but then we got to go back up because it's just so deep and so uh, filtered that, uh, that we just got to be able to dig into it. And, but we hope that we can dig into these biblical truths and get to know more over the next couple weeks. Um, as, you, as we can tell, there's so much in these passages, and some seem confusing, some seem powerful, some are amazing, and so on. And just so you know, I know some of you are even scared of reading this. Many, it's, I feel like when I was especially a youth pastor, I would have two people, one that would love to re read Revelation and those that did not want to read it. It was the complete of some that would just love to dig in. And I don't want us to be scared of it. And we, believer, we as believers should not be scared of it. We need to dig into the text. And as you can tell in Revelations 1, 3, Revelation 1, 3 says this, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Blessed is the one who reads this. It didn't say you'll gain more. Now. No, blessed is the one who reads this. And blessed are those who hear it and take heart to what is written into it. Have you ever written something, read something and it just went through and you forgot it? No, take heart. Put this in your heart. Hear it and take heart. We that read Revelations will be blessed. The issue is with revelations that so many people are trying to figure out dates and times, and there's some unclearness to this. It even says in Matthew 24, 36, Matthew 24, uh, 36, talking about end times, it says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. 
Sometimes when we look at revelations, we want to deal with the unclear, but we must focus on what we know and what we can apply, not only the unclear, but I do think, and this is what I want to sort of promise because you're like, oh, our things are clear. No, I do believe things become more clear the more you read it and the more you dig in and the more you perceive it, things become more clear. So many times you read it one time and it's like, oh, well, I got this or I heard this on a TikTok. I am telling you, if you watch a TikTok video for 30 seconds, you're not going to be able to understand all of it. Okay? We have to continue to read and focus and hear it. I also want to give you an opportunity. The on the handwritten stuff. If you, on the, the cards in front of you, or if you have questions, we want you to write those questions down during this time. Because we're going to do a Sunday night where we are going to try to answer some of your questions, okay? Uh, the earlier you get them in, the more we can actually answer them or help dig into finding Bible verses and what it says. So we want to give you guys that opportunity. So if you're like, hey, we weren't able to, that was, you flew over that a little bit and I had a question about that. Please write that down, and you guys can turn that into the next steps area. Uh, we find that uh, to be vitally important. Uh, just so you know, too, over the next couple weeks, this is such a deep book. I'm going to have uh, my Brad. He's going to come up, and he's going to speak as well. So we're going to do uh, some tag teaming, trying to get in and uh, deeper parts and be able to explain things. And we've been working together on this and how to communicate this, uh, this book uh, properly. Uh, one more point before I get into the Revelations intro. I think so many times, just as Jesus was veiled in the Old Testament to many people, the, as you can tell, the educated leaders missed him. We are in a veiled time until judgment a little bit as well. You have to think that so many Jew, Jew, uh, Jewish people had their assumptions and ideas of how the Messiah would come. They had so many ideas. We have this, and we have the scripture to guide us, but we too cannot and should not add to what the book of Revelation is saying. We can't add to the book of what Revelation is saying. We have to take it and process it, and I'll talk about how we're going to have to take it literally, figuratively, all that, and we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, moving forward. We can't miss what God is saying in this context to the people he's writing to, what is happening? I know you want a bunch of dates and years, and we'll go through some of that different process through the weeks. But if we miss who John is writing to and what the letter is intended for, we miss what God is saying to us. And so this leads to point number one, Revelation intro. What? Let's do a background of it. And I want to begin this with a paragraph by G.K. Beale. He says this, One of the great tragedies in the church in our day is how Revelation has been so narrowly and incorrectly interpreted with an obsessed focus on the future end times, with the result that we have missed the fact that it contains many profound truths and encouragements concerning Christian life and discipleship. The prophetic visions of Revelation can easily disguise the point that it was written as a letter to the churches and a letter which is pastoral in nature. 
The goal of Revelation is to bring encouragement to believers of all ages that God is working out His purposes even in the midst of tragedy, suffering, and apparent satanic domination. It is the Bible's battle cry of victory. Oh, I love that. It is the Bible's battle cry of victory. For in it, more than anywhere else in the New Testament, is revealed the final victory of God over all the forces of evil. As such, it is an encouragement to God's people to persevere in the assurance that their final reward is certain and to worship and glorify God despite trials and despite temptations to march to the world's drumbeat. I love that. Because we as humans get distracted so easily. We get off topic of what Jesus has called us to, what his words have said, and we cannot. We have to look at how revelation is meant to be looked at. As we look at the intro, we first, let's look at the author, okay? The author's name is John. He identifies himself uh, as a prophet. This is John, and as when he talks about the prophet, this is already a callback to the Old Testament. And if you don't, don't know, already the book of Revelation is filled with callbacks to the Old Testament. Many people look at Revelation and look like this is a future book. This is, this is stuff that's going into the future. It, it's, it's a lot about the Old Testament, what is happening in that culture now, and some foretelling of the future. We can't just look at Revelation as something happening in the future. Did you know that 68.8% of Revelation references the Old Testament? 68.8% of Revelation, which is looked at as the end times book, references the Old Testament. John uses the Old Testament so much. I like how Dr. My, uh, Michael Heiser says it. He's like a kid at a candy store. And he's grabbing this here, and he likes this, and he likes this because he's the Old Testament's so beautiful, it's so good, it's being fulfilled. you got to think, like, he knows the Scripture so well. He knows it so well, and now he sees that this is the fulfillment. This is the climax. This is what's happening. I'm grabbing here. I'm going to grab here. I'm going to do it. Can you imagine? One of my favorite sayings was, uh, it was from Max. Max would say this. Think if you lived in the 1500s and you saw a TV, a full screen color TV uh, for the first time. And then now you like you saw that like, well, no, sorry, I explained that wrong. Say you know what a TV is, a full screen TV. Now go back to the 1500s and explain it to someone. <laughs> explain it to someone. That is a TV. Think about the climax of what is happening here with Jesus coming down, what John had to be experiencing. And he sees this all coming. It is the fulfillment. Everything is coming together. It has got to be an amazing, beautiful, mind-blowing time. This is what is happening. This is what is happening with the author going through this time. And it's so beautiful. And just like candy, it's a, it could be, I'm just, I want, I want it. I want to explain it all. 
And as we just talked about, John is revealed to be the author now. Many people believe that this could be another John besides the Apostle John in the Bible. Some say that the John of Revelation is, is a servant. He talks about he's a servant who bears witness to Jesus Christ. And as he's writing the letter, he's actually in exile at the island at Patmos. And if, uh, if you were at Sunday school, you're like, he was basically put on an island because, you know, of his declaration of Jesus. He's put away. He's suffering. And we talked about different kinds of uh, legend stories is that, that he was put with oil on him and burning oil, but he survived and drank poison. And those are all like outside of the, the scripture, but those are legend. But he is, in fact, suffering on an island for Christ. And he's there. And this is where he has his vision. And Many writers, though, do understand that this is, whoever this is, he knows his Hebrew. Okay, many times people would know the Greek. He knows his Hebrew and he knows his Greek very well. He's able to communicate this very well. He also has a very high reputation, very high standards within the churches and within the community outside of those two, which are the Roman leaders, which he will not bow down to. So when you take a look at this, I would lean towards that this is the Apostle John. Because one, he has the authority. Two, he has the knowledge of Jesus and the wisdom. He had, his writing style is that of a Jew and of that of Hebrew and also Greek of well, of that kind of st uh, standing. So we know the author is in John. Now we take a look at the date. When is this written? Many, most believe that it was written around 90 A.D., uh, could be up to 95 A.D., so a little bit after. Some think that it was written around 68, 69 A.D. as well. That was right before the temple falls. But I'm, I'm moving forward quickly because we got a lot to get through. I would lean more towards the later dates because the churches, if you take a look at the seven churches of what's happening here in a little bit, around that time, all is what is happening in those churches. So that date fits better with what is going on in the community, what is going on also uh, in the, the persecution of the Christians at the time. Um, another avenue before I get to, uh, to Brad comes and starts dealing with the churches is that of the different writing styles. To be able to really know Revelation, there's a couple of different writing styles you must know of. They are apocalyptic, they're prophecy, and their epistles. Let's first talk about the prophecies and uh, apocalyptic together. And uh, I like how Dr. Michael Heiser says this. He says, prophets are that of those prophecies were broadly defined as someone who acted as a spokesperson for God, just someone who spoke God's truth. The biblical prophets were basically covenant enforcers. Remember, we already talked about the Old Testament. John is now Revelation. He's talked about how he's a prophet. He's bringing back. He is an Old Testament enforcer. And that is, they rallied against the unrighteousness of the people, the kings of, uh, or other nations that declared how they were out of bounds in some way with God's covenant or God's holiness. Consequently, predicting future events was not their main focus. Even when prophets did predict future events, they were nearly always ornated to their own time period. 
The near future of the unrighteous Israelites are the pagan nations that were part of Israel's world. The prophet would often render explicit predictions about the impending doom of Israel or some other nations that were not aimed at future events thousands of years beyond their own time period. That is, the end of the world scenarios. These words of John's are a warning, and we will be blessed to hear them as we talked about. Such predictions as the end of the world, so that was more prophecy, that of end of world scenarios are actually more rare in scripture. They belong to the next genre, which is apocalyptic. Apocalyptic could be thought of as a subset of prophecy, one that features markedly different than normal forth-telling prophecy and even different than normal predictive prophecy. Since most predictions in the, the prophets are near in view, not far distant in the future. The apocalyptic general describes prophecy in which God reveals hidden future plans that are catastrophic and designed in some ultimate sense to punish evil and reward the faithful. Apocalyptic prophecy is usually conveyed through dreams or visions with elaborate and strange symbolism, and such apocalyptic predictions are often conveyed through intermarriers like angels, which we see in Revelations. So, long story, prophecy. I know that was a lot, but uh, we have to sort of get this a little bit. Prophecies are more short-term. They're a little, bit, a little bit closer to that time frame. But it sort of overlaps with apocalyptic, which is more of an end of the world, a little bit farther, but it's also dealing with prophecy. So there is this overlapping connection. But there's also a little bit of a difference. And as you even said, there, and I love how Bob said it down there, there's some strange stuff being talked about. There are some unique things being symbolism being talked about. How does that connect? And the third word will help with this. This does help with it. It's the word epistle. The epistle, that deals with the letters of the seven churches. And that, that's Brad's going to talk about coming up. These letters help show the ups and downs, the strengths and weaknesses of these churches, but more importantly, the instruction and direction for how these churches are to move forward with godly living, to direct and encourage believers in the situation, to help them in the situation they are in now. John is encouraging the suffering church. He's encouraging those who have lost their way. He is foretelling, showing them the path that God has laid out. Point number two. God of Old Testament. God of Old Testament. I'm not going to sit here long. I'm actually going to give you some verses to dive into. We talked a little bit about Sunday school, but... If you want to write these down, if you look at Revelation 1, you look at Revelation 1, and you look at verse 4, and we're going to go, we're going to go through these real quick, 4, 8, 11, and 17. Verse 4 says this, John, to the seven churches of the providence of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne. It talks about 
from him who is and who was and who is to come. Let's jump to verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Verse 11, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Let's go to verse 17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid. I am the first and I am the last. I am he who lives and I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. We're talking revelation here. He's pulling these. Let's go to, if you, uh, if you can go to Exodus 3, 14. This is when God reveals his name to Moses. This is when God reveals his name to Moses. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am. These are declarations. John is making it clear. The God that got you out of Egypt, the God that provided for you, the God that's been there from the beginning is the God that is coming to Save you now. It is the same God. We aren't talking about anything else. We'll do one more example. Revelation 1, 5 through 6. Revelation 1, 5 through 6 says this. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Let's look then back. What's that a callback to? Let's call back to Exodus 19, 5 through 6. Another callback. 19, 5 through 6, it says this, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Revelation 6, it says, and has made us kings and priests to his God. In Revelation 1, 6, it is the completion of what he was talked about in Exodus. We are now priests. We are now kings and priests to his God, the Father. It is the completion. It is the reminder that John is calling back to Old Testament. And this goes over and over and over again in Revelation. And if we miss that and we're only looking towards the future, we miss all that is connected to the beautiful Old Testament, the beautiful God of which we are talking about. I know some of you are writing notes, and if you want to dive more into this literature literature part and all that, I am going to give you uh, a name of a podcast right now, and I want you to dig in, and then Brad's going to come up and finish. It's called the Naked Bible Podcast. I know that's a unique name, 
but it's about really digging into the scripture. It's called the Naked Bible Podcast, and it's episode 29. I would encourage you to, to dig mostly into that, but I want to also give you a resource as uh, we clearly don't have time to dive all the way into it, but those are great resources to have. And at this time, Brad's going to come up and talk about point number three, the churches. Um, there we go. There's a lot to Revelation. I think one of the biggest mistakes we can make in Revelation is um, spending all of our time spinning our wheels on trying to figure out the mysteries, trying to figure out the things that we're never going to understand versus just taking in what's obvious, taking in what, what it is clearly communicating. Um, and so that's, that's the approach that I think that as John and I have been studying it, we want to try and take. We want to help you to see... Um, What's obvious, and, ob and, and there, are, there are things that we can speculate. There are views, obviously, on, on end-time things, but there's a lot of practicality for today, for the here and now, and that's what we want to focus on. So when we're talking about the churches, um, John is writing this letter to seven established churches, and it's important to realize that uh, each of these seven churches, they had a corporate identity, okay? So think about that. Living Hope, we have a corporate identity. Every church has a corporate identity, and that corporate identity is made up of individual identities. So as we come together with our gifts and with our um, strengths and our calling, we form a corporate body with strengths and weaknesses that are reflective of what our individual strengths and weaknesses are. Okay, So each one of these churches had a corporate identity. These churches had self-awareness issues. Does anybody here have self-awareness awareness issues? I think we, no matter how young or old we are, we, we, all of us have self-awareness issues to a degree. All of us do, right? And so um, we are not always the people we think we are. These churches were not necessarily who they thought they were. And so Jesus is going to offer spiritual clarity. This is the, the clearest form of truth that, he, that you can ever receive, right? If Jesus is speaking on it, and he's speaking with spiritual clarity, that is the clearest truth that we could ever have. And so we know that it's true. We know that it's reliable. And he's establishing his credentials, as John just said. It's the same God that led you out of Egypt. It's the same God that provided manna in the wilderness. It's the same God that's been with you. It's reliable. He's reliable. His testimony is trustworthy. Okay? And we also know that the prescription that he's going to give for each one of these churches, because he's going to have the good, he's going to have the bad, in some cases he's going to have the ugly for each one of these congregations, the prescription that he gives to change it, to fix it, to turn it around, also checks out individually. He's going to give a corporate um, analysis but it, we can apply it individually as well. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. He says this over and over and over. Anyone, anyone, not just the members of the congregation, not just the, 
the early church, first century followers, he's talking to you and he's talking to me. Anyone who has ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says. Now, there are some scholars who believe that each one of these churches represents a different age in church history. I'm not one of those people. I'm not saying that that's not possible, but I think that a, a more solid biblical interpretation of the churches is that each one of these churches represents a profile that any church at any given time in history can resemble or can become. Living hope, we, we might resemble one of these profiles or multiple combinations of profiles. So let's take a look first at that. Let's take a look at this, uh, this image. And we can see the different profiles of the churches. So, uh, yeah, you can go back one, sorry. The seven churches here, Ephesus, we have the loveless church. And I, this is perfect timing, just like God, there's a train coming. <laughs> and I've got train on here because we all know people who are truth trainers, Right? They're just going to run you over on the tracks. They don't, they're not, they don't have grace. They don't have love. They're just truth, all truth. That's what the, we're talking about when we talk about the church at Ephesus. They were truth trainers. They had left their first love. They were the loveless church. Smyrna, you can tell by the image there, does not look very pleasant. Smyrna was the suffering church. There was a lot of suffering going on in Smyrna. Pergamum, the compromising church. Wearing masks, compromising. Thyatira, the adulterous church. Okay, this is the church that had the prophetess Jezebel who was leading people astray with her false teaching, her false theology. Sardis, the dead church or the sleeping church. Uh, they thought they were alive, but they were actually dead. Philadelphia, the faithful church. So you got this church, is, they're running a marathon and they're, they're running together. They're, 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 they're united. They're... Um, they're faithful, and so Philadelphia, the faithful church. Philadelphia and Smyrna really are the two churches. They don't receive any criticism from Jesus. It's all, it's all praise. Uh, and then Laodicea, there with all the materialism, and uh, they were very wealthy. This is the lukewarm church, right? Um, we could say there's actually a couple different names you could have for this church, but um, those are the profiles, okay? So those, and we don't have really time to go super into, like, how do you cover se all seven of these in a few minutes here? We can't really do it, but I do want to dig into um, to the issues that each of these churches was facing. So let's go to that next one. So church issues for all seven churches. Let's look at this first uh, column here, which is going to be, you can go to the next slide, cultural issues. Okay. 100% of the churches were facing some kind of cultural issue. All right, now this is important because what that tells us is, I think we know this already by now, we are going to face cultural issues as a church body. We are going to face cultural issues as a, individual believers. We are going to battle and wrestle against culture. Culture and the church are not always going to see eye to eye. And even the, the two churches that were praised by Jesus that didn't have any negatives, Smyrna and Philadelphia, they still wrestled with cultural issues, okay? Let's go to the next one, economic, economic issues. Two of the churches, Smyrna was poor, they were a poor church, but Jesus calls them rich spiritually. This is an interesting uh, reversal because then you go down to, down to Laodicea, Laodicea 
They thought they were rich. They thought they needed nothing. And Jesus actually says, you're poor, you're miserable, you're blind. You're spiritually bankrupt. Okay? So it's interesting that from an economic standpoint, economics cannot always determine spiritual health. You can be rich economically and poor spiritually and vice versa. So two of the church, two of the, two of the seven struggle with economic. And the last one is leadership issues. This one surprised me a little bit. We're talking about the early church, very uh, strong leaders. They, they, some of these leaders would have been, um, you know, first century followers. And so it's, it's, it's very, uh, it's a little bit concerning. 71%, five out of the seven churches struggled with leadership issues. And when I say leadership, we're talking about compromise, really. We're talking about allowing false teaching, allowing for things to happen that, were, that, that was derailing the church, okay? So knowing a little bit about each church, knowing the issues that they're struggling with, I want to dig into one church in particular in the, in the time that we have remaining, and that's the church at Philadelphia. So the church at Philadelphia was referred to as having little strength. Has anyone here ever had or felt like you have little strength? Have you ever felt like, I don't know how in the world I'm going to get through this? Have you ever wondered, God, why have you allowed this to happen? I don't know if I can, if I can get through this. I don't know if I'm strong enough. The church at Philadelphia, they knew what it meant to feel weak. Let's go to the Revelation verse uh, 8, th- chapter 3, verse 8. I know your works. Behold, I have set you before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Weak physically, weak mentally, weak emotionally, weak materially. These are all ways that we struggle with little power, and yet... What we find out about the church at Philadelphia is they were strong spiritually. They were weak in a lot of things. They were strong spiritually. What's Jesus going to do about it? Well, he says in the very next verse, Revelation 3, 9, he says this, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come down and bow before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. You know, as I studied this, I could not get the last line out of my head. It was so intriguing to me. And they will learn that I have loved you. What kind of issues was the church at Philadelphia maybe struggling with that was causing this? Well, Colin uh, Hemmer, in his book, The Letters to the Seven Churches of Asia in Their Local Setting, puts forth this idea that um, they were really struggling with the culture of the Roman emperor worship versus the Jewish people and in, in their, uh, you know, the, Jew, the Jews that did not believe Jesus that was the Messiah, they kind of got pressure from both sides of that, right? They were kicked out of the Jewish synagogues as Christians. And then, of course, they didn't fit in with Roman culture. They weren't going to worship the Roman gods of Zeus and, you know, all these other false gods. And so there was pressure put on them by both of these sides that they didn't fit in and they didn't have any support. They didn't have support from the Roman government. They didn't have support from the Jewish authorities, you know, the the Sanhedrin and and, and the Pharisees, the Sadducees. And so they they, they had no one. 
They were on their own. And no doubt the Jews and the Romans wanted them to, to take one side or the other and not be Christians. And so you can imagine the suffering in this, in this time. It was horrible. Apparently, according to this letter from Jesus, there were leaders and believers in the church who refused to succumb to either of these options, which no doubt caused greater antagonism and greater suffering for their community. And again, as I studied this, I kept coming back to, they will learn that I have loved you. God wants the world to know that he loves us. Notice it does not say, they will know our love for God. They will know your love for God. No. They will know God's love for you. Outsiders, the Romans, the Jews, they already knew that this Christian community at Philadelphia loved Jesus because they kept to his word and did not deny his name. That's what Jesus tells them in the letter. He says, I know your deeds. I know that you have kept my word. I know that you haven't denied my name. And they refused to compromise. And really, when you think about it, when you look through Scripture, this is a theme that we see all throughout Scripture. When the Israelites were in Egypt, backed up against the Red Sea, Pharaoh's army bearing down on them, the entire ancient world saw the glory of God as he parted the Red Sea. Now, was that as a result of the Israelites' love for God? No. What did the whole world see? The whole world saw God loves his people, and he's going to deliver them in times of need, in times of suffering. And we could go on and on with examples. There's Daniel in the lion's den. There's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which we talked about at Sunday school, in the fiery furnace. All of these are examples of where we see God's love for his people in their suffering, in their trials. Ordinary people like you and me, people with little strength, But what was the thing that they clung to? They clung to Jesus' name. They clung to his word, and they clung to his name. They were not going to deny his name. They were not going to deny his word. And oh, by the way, this is what Jesus prayed for his disciples in John 17. John 17, 23. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. What's Jesus' prayer concerned about? That the world would know that God loves his people and that he loved his son. Jesus prayed that the world may know that God loves you and me. If you're like me, you don't enjoy suffering. Suffering is terrible. Suffering is difficult. But there is something mysterious that happens when we cling to Christ in our suffering. There is something incredible. There are blessings that are bestowed upon his people in suffering that I believe that cannot be experienced any other way. And I believe that I've experienced this myself, that there are just some blessings in my life that I simply would never have received, that I never would have learned without going through the suffering that I went through. I think that many American Christians miss this. I think that we miss this because suffering is so uncomfortable and we're not used to it in our culture. 
And I, and I think that there, just as I've seen blessings in, in my suffering, I think there's equally as many times where I've missed them. I've missed the blessings of Christ because I've had a bad attitude about my suffering and I haven't clung to him like I should have. And I've tried to fix it myself. And I've whined and I've complained and I've <sighs> become restless. You know, I have a friend who I've talked about in Sunday school who is in his 30s, five kids, and he's been diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. When he was diagnosed, he had five kids age six or under, okay? So obviously, that's some serious suffering, right? And when I talk to him these days, he actually tells me that he's thankful for his cancer because he has seen the hand of God like he has never seen before. He has seen miracle after miracle after miracle happen with him and his family. It has brought them closer than they've ever been, not only together as a family, but closer to God. They have experienced things that I'm almost, I, I feel envious of almost because I see the joy and the gratitude, and, and, they, and they don't let the little things uh, bother them. You know, they, there's just a totally different perspective, a spiritual perspective. And, and I say, I think, ah, I want to have that. How do we have? We endure through suffering. There are some blessings, again, that I believe cannot happen unless they happen within our suffering. What does that mean for the church at Philadelphia? Well, he said earlier that there's going to be a door that he's going to open that no one can shut. Now, I don't know totally what that means. There's a lot of debate with scholars, but it sounds pretty cool that God's going to open a door for them and no one can shut it, right? He, almost, he also promises spiritual protection to keep them from the hour of trial that is coming to the earth. Two amazing spiritual promises, Typically, we think of God being glorified as something positive happening to us or to our churches. Attendance is growing. Programs are thriving. Finances are booming. And don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that God can't be glorified in those things. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not even saying that God isn't glorified in those things. But those are second-tier blessings. Those, those kinds of things do not compare to God opening a door that literally no one can close. People in their own strength can raise attendance. People in their own strength can raise finances. The same thing for programs. But an open door that no one can shut, only God can do that. Protection from the hour of trial that is coming, that's all God. These are blessings that were experienced by the church at Philadelphia because they refused to let go of Jesus, they clung to him, and they said, whatever comes, whatever suffering comes, whatever trials come, we are not going to let go of our Christ. And they received Jesus' highest praise. With the church of Philadelphia, and with so many other stories in Scripture, and I know that we're, we're past time, so I'm going to wind down, including Jesus' own story, by the way, God is glorified in our suffering 
because others will witness the incredible power that is found in his love for his children. They will know the God of the universe, the God of creation, the God of Israel. They will know that God has loved you. When we cling to him in our suffering, others see his love. And that's how God is glorified. That's how he gets the glory. With the church at Philadelphia, they were a people who wanted to participate in glorifying God by persevering. Let's be a people. Let us be a community. Let us be a church who participates in glorifying God by persevering in our allegiance to God's name and God's word and God's son, no matter what comes, no matter what circumstances, no matter what situation, no matter the pain, no matter the struggle. Let us be people whom the world will see that God has loved. Let's pray. Jesus, I want to have a supernatural perspective. We want to have a supernatural vision to be able to see all that you're doing and all that you can do in our struggles. There are some of us today right now who are in a struggle, who are suffering like we've never suffered before. You are with us. You have promised to never leave or forsake us. You have promised that nothing on this earth or in this universe can separate us from your love. God, I pray that you would give us the vision, that you would give us the strength. Some of us, we have little strength, God. We, ad- we admit it. We confess it. But we know that when we are weak, you are strong. And we know, God, that you are glorified when we cling to you in our struggles, in our trials, in our suffering. God, give us that kind of perspective. Give us that kind of attitude. Give us that kind of follow-through. I pray, God, that as we leave this place, that your spirit would guide us, and that, um, God, that we would leave, like I pray, different than how we came in, with a different perspective on life, with a different perspective on suffering. Because ultimately, God, to live is Christ and to die is gain. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.